Hey, Liz, how's it going? Not too bad, thanks. Not too bad. How about yourself? Pretty good. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. We're excited. Yeah, of course. Can we just jump in and have a conversation? In your own words, what your role is, what your background is, that kind of thing. Do you mind just jumping in with that? Yeah, absolutely. So prior to working at Morning Brew, I was working at Industry Dive. Um, It's a B2B media company in DC focused on, I think now 20 to 25 different industries. So they have um, industry specific business publications. So they have Retail Dive about the retail industry, Biopharma Dive about the biopharma industry. So got started there in audience development. They're also very newsletter focused. So it was focused on growing the newsletters, increasing our traffic, on-site conversion, everything like that um, to to grow those publications. So learned a lot about newsletters and about business media and then jumped over to Morning Brew and was able to bring over a lot of the skills I learned I learned over there. Cool. And for Morning Brew, what does a growth team look like? I think a lot of people listening to this, even if they have maybe 50 or 100,000 subscribers, think growth team, that's that's what I do on a Wednesday afternoon. What, what is a growth team at Morning Brew? Yeah, absolutely. So we're still a fairly small team um, relative to the size of the company. We're hiring a ton. But right now our team is we have a growth marketing analyst, Tony, who is really focused on the majority of our paid acquisition. We're spending on across a bunch of different platforms to bring in high quality subscribers. So he's responsible for all of that and all of our reporting and working with the content and sales team to deliver all the audience data and information that they need to either sell the audience or better understand the audience. And then we have a marketing coordinator, Sarah, who has a lot more brand and community kind of experience. So she's focused on helping us, you know, build and launch new brands, deepen our engagement with our readers, run our ambassador program, everything like that. Awesome. And maybe that's a good background to dive into kind of a very high level of how you think about growth at Morning Brew. What does growth even mean for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think in the beginning, when we were a single newsletter company, it was purely acquiring more subscribers. So it was just, how do we bring more readers in the door and how do we retain them? And that is still definitely more than half probably of what I'm focused on. But what we also try to think about is how can we, you know, deepen their engagement with our brand. So whether that's exposing them to all of the other products we have or getting them to read more content we have, share that content, refer a friend. So all of those things that kind of deepen their um, relationship with us and really let readers bring more value is really the two separate sides of it. Interesting. So when you talk about the engagement side of things, what metrics are important to you for a subscriber? What are you looking at to tell you whether you're doing a a good job or an even better job? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say the first and foremost, and the one we focus on the most is subscribers who open. So we are closely monitoring in the subscribers first couple of weeks with us, how often are they opening? Um, because we found that that's typically very indicative of how engaged they'll be over their full lifetime is those first two weeks. So we focus a lot on that as well as the longer term open rate cohort analysis, all of that. But in addition to opening, a subscriber also adds value for us if they are tend to prefer more users, obviously. So we, you know, are tracking what kinds of sources are bringing in those types of readers who are, you know, going to refer three, five, 10 people, because obviously that brings a ton of value to the business as well. And then what's a bit more difficult to track, but something I I want us to get better at is how many readers are um, engaging with our, both our content and our ads, understanding what kinds, where are we getting those readers who tend to click on ads or tend to engage with our content, share our content, everything like that. 
Brilliant. I'd love to dive a bit deeper into that, if you don't mind. And obviously, I don't want you to divulge any secrets that will, uh, oh, will get okay. you fired. <laughs> no secrets. <laughs> Brilliant. So the first metric you talked about there, the, the engagement, the open rates within the first two weeks. I'm just interested. Is that something where if you can get more people to open more often in the first two weeks, it's more likely that they will be retained and carry on being an engaged subscriber? Or is it more an indicator of whether the person who subscribed was a good fit or not in the first place? Yeah, so we we tend to think about it more as the latter. I think for a different kind of product, you can maybe think about it more so as the former. Because we've determined who we are, what our product is, we're not necessarily going to say, oh, a bunch of people unsubscribed to, from this random source, acquisition source we tried out. Now let's go change our product or do, deliver them something else. So we now that we feel like we have the newsletter product down and while we're always improving it and making it uh, more interactive trying to keep it fresh and everything like that we really more so it's the growth team's responsibility to go and find the subscribers who are going to like it as opposed to vice versa awesome so it, really it's giving you the kind of like a leading indicator of how effective that acquisition source that acquisition channel was as opposed to being a some, something that you think about how to improve those first two weeks for different people exactly Okay, awesome. And then that second, obviously, you, you touched quickly there on the number of subscribers who go on to refer people and what source they came from as well, what channel they came from. Mm-hmm. And I do want to touch on the referral side of things a bit, maybe a, a tiny bit later, but mm-hmm. I'm just it super, you know, piqued my interest there. Does it make a big difference what acquisition source they came from? Yeah, it actually surprisingly does. It's, it can vary as much as two to three times, depending on where the source came from. And it, it does usually map up relatively to like how engaged the subscriber is just from like an opens perspective. But for example, recently subscribers who come from like influencer campaigns have tended to refer another user more so than, than other kind of similar paid acquisition channels in the past. Another source of strong referrals is referrals. So people who signed up via referral are very likely to then refer another person, I think, because they they see how the program works, they get why their friend did it, and then they pay it forward and want to get in on the rewards as well. Yeah, it's interesting. So it makes sense if you think about it, I guess they're, they've been normalized to the idea of, of referring, of sharing this with other mm-hmm. people. So it does make sense that they would feel comfortable to go and do that if they're seeing uh, people in their sphere of influence doing that already. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. And how does all of that change kind of the the way that you approach growth then when it's not just about getting as many subscribers onto that list as possible, but thinking about optimizing for engagement as well? Yeah, I think especially when you're trying to grow really fast there and you are small and you want to have your budget in mind, it's very easy to go after like co-reg sources or just rely on like Facebook and Instagram, which can sometimes be great, but there's just the more like email specific channels that are sometimes a bit more expensive, like sponsoring other newsletters or running programmatic display in within email and stuff like that. That's a little bit on the higher end on the, on the, you know, CPM side, but it ends up panning out in the long term because those are usually the type of people who will open emails, will subscribe to newsletters and actually engage with them as opposed to someone who will just like, check a box when registering for something completely unrelated and isn't actually that interested in your product. Yeah, that's really interesting. So 
you must have a, a really good grasp on kind of the lifetime value of one of your subscribers or the, the projected lifetime value of one of your subscribers. Then if you're going to go, especially for some of these more expensive pay channels. Yeah, I would be lying if I said we had LTV down to a science at this point. It has been difficult as an ad supported company and we've changed how we run that a few times. So you know, getting it to an exact LTV has been, has been tough, but we do have a general idea of what we feel like is our ceiling of when it doesn't make sense anymore from longer term business perspective to, to acquire, to pay to acquire that subscriber. Brilliant. And maybe leading on from there, then, can you talk a bit about the channels that you're currently using for, for acquisition and maybe which ones you've seen performing well historically, but but maybe aren't quite as, as hot for the future? Yeah. So we started out, the first thing we did when starting to spend on paid marketing was sponsoring other newsletters. On um, Mentor 4 just turns out to be super effective. You're acquiring someone who's already um, bought into the medium of newsletters, and that tends to be super effective. So I think if you're trying to grow your newsletter and you have your first kind of few hundred dollars to spend, I, I would recommend finding a, a tangentially related newsletter where you think your target audience might already be hanging out. And then beyond that, we moved into the, all of the paid social. So this was also two years ago when paid social was a lot uh, cheaper than it is now. So we spent a lot on Facebook and Instagram. We tried Snapchat, Quora, Reddit, you name it, we tried it in the paid world. And a lot of those don't really hold up for us right now. We still, we have an affiliate program that's really effective for us um, and a lot of direct CPL publisher relationship deals. And we also now are really starting to ramp up on sponsoring influencers. That has been a really promising channel for us and one we're going to be investing a lot more in in the future. Can we maybe go back quickly to the the sponsoring other newsletters, the, the cross-promotion side of things? What does that look like? How What's your process for finding newsletters that maybe would be a good fit that you'd like to try out working with together? Yeah, there's a bunch of different kind of like newsletter curators out there. Ones that either just curate them from the consumer side or actually facilitate you purchasing and sponsoring a newsletter. And so we've used a handful of those as well as just seeking them out or people coming across them and then sending them along as, oh, we should probably sponsor this. And even as we've, you know, scaled so much, we still are always investing in finding new ones, even if they're small, just because they are so effective. That's amazing. And thinking about it for someone who maybe is a complete beginner and just starting to think about this for the first time, what is the typical, are you paying for, for impressions there? Are you paying for clicks, for leads? What, what tends to be the normal way that you would, you would structure one of those um, deals? They're usually flat fees. Some of them, I think, charge on CPM or CPC, but the majority are flat fee. I think another thing we look for within that is that it's like a native ad and not a banner. Like those just never really tend to pan out for us. But if it's like a native text-based ad, that usually um, will perform pretty well. Awesome. So you'd probably suggest some text, I imagine, in that case, and then you would let the, similar to what you probably hear in most podcast episodes, right? You'd let the, the creator themselves probably have a go at the, adapting the content of the ad itself. Yes, exactly. Brilliant. Have there, have there been any channels that you tried that maybe people haven't thought about and just didn't work whatsoever for some reason? What doesn't work for us generally is things that are more like intent oriented. So that's in my mind, that's AdWords, Quora, Pinterest, like places where people go and search for something and you deliver ads based on that. 
we haven't really found success with that because no one's ever, oh, should I go subscribe to a newsletter right now? And then searching for it in, in a, some engine, like that's not, we're not like going to satisfy that, that search intent. So we don't really find success on those kinds of platforms. If we were delivering then like one of our like educational guides, like maybe that would work, but because we have to stay focused on those DR focused campaigns, those more like search oriented platforms that may be great for e-commerce brands or educational content, they don't really work as well for us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So do you tend to use, I guess, what more the, 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 the B2B industry would call like lead magnets uh, for getting people to sign up? Because the, the classic kind of morning mm-hmm. brew uh, sign up form that I think most of us think of is, is that sign up page is very minimal. There's, there's not a lot on there at all. Yeah, definitely. We've experimented with trying to push out content and then try to get people to convert either gating it or really just putting like a hard pop-up on it. Haven't really seen a ton of success with that for paid acquisition. Since our CAC targets are already so low, we know that when we do that, the quality is going to be lower just because we just created a worse experience. So it usually ends up being a slightly lower quality and then slightly lower cost that doesn't end up offsetting itself. So we haven't really gotten, been able to nail that. I think if we were a bit more of a niche newsletter, which I'm sure a lot of smaller newsletters are, like if we were more focused on a specific industry or a specific interest, something like that, something like that might make sense because if somebody was reading about that particular topic and was interested to click on that and then signed up for something, you're probably more likely to find a good subscriber. But for us, business is just very general and there's a lot of content already out there around it. Just by virtue of clicking an article about business news doesn't necessarily mean that you wanted to sign up for a business newsletter in that moment. So I think it's it's a bit too much of a leap. Yeah. Okay. That, that totally makes sense. So I want to move on to talk quickly about the referral side of stuff as well in a second. Is there anything you can share that you've learned? You mentioned on the, the influencer side, that's something you're investing heavily in in the near future. Are there any lessons you can share from doing that, that approach to, to starting that seems to be working well or maybe any kind of mistakes you made at the beginning that, that you realized weren't the way to go? Yeah, I think we have, what has worked is when we just test a lot of different influencers focused on different topics. So I think we went in a little narrow-minded and what we found is sometimes a cooking channel actually does well, or sometimes a guy just talking about coffee does well, like, as opposed to, we were very focused on like the personal finance and real estate type YouTubers. And those do still do well. But what we've found is that there's a lot of different creators can actually work for us, especially since we're a pretty broad target audience product. So being able to set aside some experimentation budget to find additional pockets of what's going to work for us has been really effective. Right. Yeah. And I imagine there are agencies or providers you can work with there to, to, to work with those influencers, or do you do a lot of the outreach yourself? Um, we work with an agency right now. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. And uh, before you get to the referral things, I know you've done giveaways in the past. Are those something that you see in, in the future? Were they good, less, or less useful going forward? How do you think, how do they fit into the Yeah, for strategy? sure. I, I think it's, they definitely always back out and are a great growth driver to pack in there every month or so. I do think there is an element of it getting old and it getting stale 
end up being like, oh, Morning Brew's doing another giveaway. I don't want that to be how people feel about it. So I try, I'm trying to spread them out a bit more and trying just to keep them fresh, even if it means they perform slightly worse on a pure like numbers perspective, but making sure that we're, sometimes it's swag and sometimes it's a MacBook or sometimes it's a trip, just trying to keep it fresh and also just highlighting the people who actually won. I think that's something we could do a better job of because I think there are always going to be the skeptics out there who think that we don't actually give out what we say we're going to. So I think being able to be like, here's this person with their MacBook that the brew sent them, sh- sharing a picture of them in the giveaway the next time we promote it, I think is going to, would be helpful in managing the brand reputation as we, as we will probably continue still doing them because they are effective, but there's always going to be that kind of trade-off with things like that. Yeah, of course. And moving on to the, the referral side of things, I, I know uh, there've been a couple of articles written really in depth about how the, the referral program was set up. They are, I think, a year or two old at this point. Maybe just for an update, can you give the big picture, a thousand foot view of, of where the referral program fits into the growth strategy as a whole? Yeah, for sure. The gro- the referral program is still probably drives 30-ish percent, if not more sometimes, of our subscribers per month. So it's still still definitely kicking after all these years. And we do our best to kind of keep it fresh and introduce new rewards, change up how we're talking about it, and just make sure we're optimizing every piece of it to keep it fresh for people. But we also have new people coming in the door through all different channels who are also inclined to refer people. So it's definitely a huge part of our strategy still. And when it comes to the actual rewards that you have, so you have the mix of the referral giveaway that you run periodically with different prizes that you keep fresh, but you also have the standard milestone referrals with different tiers. Mm-hmm. So a reward, for example, for the making one referral, five, 10, and so on. How do you think about optimizing that to make sure that it's, it's, it's doing its job and it's performing well? Because it, it must be quite difficult when you have multiple rewards to understand how you can tweak that to make it more effective, which bits are working and which bits aren't working so well. Yeah, definitely. Last year in, I think, January, we decided it was time to give the rewards a little makeover. So we put out a couple of surveys to our readers asking what was, what rewards, people who had already earned the rewards, what rewards did they like the best? And then people who hadn't earned them yet, what rewards were like most incentivizing to them. So tried to get some feedback there. And then we also just have a lot of the more qualitative feedback of readers being like, oh, I can't wait to get the mug or people being like, eh, this was not that exciting to me. So really just using a combination of both like our gut and this kind of survey data to understand how we can rejigger the rewards to be as incentivizing as possible while still making sense from a financial perspective. So with that, like one of the updates we made was um, the mug was super incentivizing to people. People wanted to read Morning Brew, drink their Morning Brew out of a Morning Brew mug. So we had that at 25 referrals, which is like a pretty high tier. And since we wanted more people holding a mug, it's just great for the brand. And it was so exciting for people. We brought that down to just 15 referrals. For, for the milestone for that. And with that, we've now, we're now seeing so many more people hit 15 referrals just because they are, we see people sharing on social media, like I need that mug. I need to get my morning brew mug. So please sign up. Things like that, taking that combination of both the actual data that we're seeing from surveys or from the referral numbers, but also just being like, this is just a good, we just want more people holding mugs. Like that's just good for the brand. We're not gonna be able to measure that necessarily but it's worth it in the end. And a lot more people now have morning brew mugs in their house, which is great. 
Awesome. The, the brand exposure. If you were to take that kind of what you've learned there, and I, I know you touched on a lot of uh, kind of different factors that make a reward more or less successful. If you were to take that uh, and maybe implement that for a completely different newsletter brand, are there any kind of rules of thumb you can pull out of that for what tend to make, uh, you know, or, or what do you think goes into a, a good reward? Yeah, I think I think a lot of people now are trying to do referral programs. And I don't know if it's necessarily always the best growth driver, depending on like, knowing your brand. If it is something that people would naturally talk about with other people and it benefits them to have another person in their life who's subscribed to it, who they can talk to the newsletter about, like then that's probably a good sign that a referral program would be great and that people are building that kind of relationship with your brand that they would want an, a branded item from you. Whereas for, I think it's all just about understanding the audience and trying to think about what would really incentivize this person. Cause it, yeah, I don't think doing like a $50 Amazon gift card or something like that's not really like a brand building um, exercise, but maybe it's not necessarily a branded item that they would want, but it's going back to my example before, if it's an industry specific newsletter or something like that, then maybe they want access to a community of other like-minded professionals, or they want to go to an event or something like that. So I think it's all just about thinking about what your audience would want and what makes sense for your brand, like what world it makes sense for your brand to play in. Sure. And if someone were to start a referral program, what do you think is is roughly the right number of subscribers that, that it makes sense to, us to start even thinking about that kind of thing? Um, I don't know if I would say there's like a certain number of subscribers where it makes sense. Cause I think like scale means a different thing to every different newsletter, but I think it's more of, are you seeing people already sharing organically, like without any incentive? If you start seeing, oh, I, a lot of people are forwarding the newsletter. A lot of people are saying they heard about it from a friend or something like that. I think that's more of a, the right t- time to be like, oh, I, now it makes sense because people are already organically doing this as opposed to it being like a certain number necessarily. Brilliant. Yeah. Obviously it depends on every different use case, right? I'm, I'm sure mm-hmm. uh, there'll be some people who will, will do terribly when they have a hundred thousand subscribers and some people who would do an amazing job of that with 300, who knows? Brilliant. Yeah. On from there, I would like to talk maybe slightly about some advice that's maybe focused more on people who are earlier in their, their journey. So maybe they have 10,000 subscribers on their newsletter and there really isn't a lot of advice out there for people who get to that level on, on what to do next and how to think about it. If you were to be given a 10,000 subscriber newsletter, or if you were to be forced to go and work at one, what would you be thinking about? Yeah, it definitely depends. But I think thinking about a way to increase the ability for someone to discover your newsletter or your content or your brand just in general is a really interesting thing to think about and something that will take more time, but it'll be one of those things that compounds over time once you start it. So whether that's supplementing your having a larger social presence or something like that, just making it easier for people to discover you, I think is, is going to be the biggest thing when it comes to now everyone, there are so many newsletters, right? So discoverability is going to be a huge, you know, challenge. I think a lot of newsletter creators will face and making sure that people are able to find them. So I think it's thinking about how can you build your top of funnel? How can you make people aware of you? How can you be in other places outside of the inbox? Because there's, it's just only going to get more competitive 
So being able to build that top of funnel, I think will be super important in helping you get to that from that 10,000 number to that, to the next level. Awesome. And outside of building the top of funnel, what metrics would you be looking at to just get an idea for even how healthy the list is and what, what would be the most important thing for you? Would you be looking presumably for engagement for opens? Would you be more interested in the unsubscriber rate? What's an indicator for you that they're on the right track? Yeah, I think just looking at opens and longer term retention. And if people are being, are super engaged just for the beginning, or if they're maintaining that, that level of engagement throughout, throughout a long, over a longer period, for sure. Awesome. Is there anything else that you've seen on the growth side that has surprised you or that you think is maybe something that others are sleeping on that isn't as widely known as it should be? Hmm. I think what has, what is surprising to a lot of people is, especially as you open the floodgates and start trying to run a lot of different growth channels is that the kind of quality user you get from different channels, even though they're signing up on the same landing page and they're getting sent the same newsletters, the variance of user quality is going to be still so strong across different channels. So I think maybe not enough people pay attention to that. And sometimes it makes more sense to invest more so in the slightly more expensive channel because they're bringing in those quality users. And being able to identify that sooner will definitely pay off in the long run. Right. Okay. And is that just about having good segmenting inside of your, your email tool and keeping an eye on that? Yeah, I think, I think segmenting is tough in newsletters because you're not going to not send them in the newsletter and you're only going to write one, I assume. <laughs> but I think it's also about just if you're starting to bring in new subscribers and making sure that you're looking at them on a different, you're breaking it out by where you acquired them from and making sure that if you're seeing a lot of great subscribers come from one source, you keep investing back in that one, as opposed to the one that's bringing in the kind of like mediocre subscribers. Brilliant. If people want to go and find out more about you and the Morning Brew, where should they go? They can check out Morning Brew um, on Twitter and we're signing up at morningbrew.com. Awesome. And thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Thank you so much.